Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Well, thank you all. That was awesome. And it was great to have the youth here and leading. And we, we have emphasized over and over in our church that, you know, we're, we're not a segmented community. We are a a full body together, and it is awesome when we get to see the youth contribute and see all their talents and their abilities, and it's an encouragement to all of us, and uh, I'm thankful for them and for what they've done this morning, how they've led us. And as we uh, prepare to look at the scriptures, I'd invite you to grab your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter. And we're continuing in our march through First Peter, and we're in First Peter chapter two, looking at verse eleven and twelve. Uh, Peter is an important book, and it's it's written by the apostle Peter. Uh, it's a short book, and there's two, First and Second Peter. And we don't uh, we we know a lot more about the experiences and the life of Peter than the instructions of Peter, and so these two little books certainly take on profound significance, especially as we think about the life of Peter, the ministry of Peter, the experiences of Peter with the Lord, and. I hope that you're uh, growing in your appreciation of what Peter instructs us about. In the book of 1 Peter, the, the topic that he begins with through the first part of the book, right up to chapter 2, verse 11, is uh, uh, about the riches of our salvation, uh, about the, the inheritance we receive because we trust in Jesus, about the new birth that happens once we trust in Jesus, about the living hope that we have and this inheritance that does not spoil or fade, and that these gifts of grace are kept by God, shielded by God for us, and that this leads to inexpressible joy. The more we perceive and understand the depth of God's love, the faithfulness of God to us in the riches of our salvation, our joy magnifies. And Peter sounds the note of joy over and over in these first, uh, first chapter. And then last two weeks, we looked as he makes a, a transition from verses uh, 23 in chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse uh, 10, he's talking about the family. And we began to see that the, 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 the strength of our salvation and our ability to meet the challenges of the world, which is what Peter's doing, is writing to Galatian churches in the area of Turkey, our present-day Turkey on the Black Sea. And these are Gentile churches that are facing various trials and tribulations and they're, they're struggling with their faith because they're receiving economic pressure, they're being discriminated against, they're, they're uh, being segregated from their society and they're beginning to question, is this gospel worth living for? How do we manage these challenges as believers? 
And in large part, we can feel that same stress as we try to live faithfully before the Lord Jesus, holding to the name of Christ. Oftentimes, we receive questions from the culture around us as to whether we're too fanatical or too crazy or we should be really holding on to an ancient faith. But Peter is saying that we need to understand the power of the gospel, which he describes in the first part, And then we need to understand the depth of our relationship as a church, as a family of people together. And from understanding God's work in our hearts through salvation and the community we're brought into, we can stay faithful to the message of the gospel. We can be salt and light in the world around us. We can stand as representatives of this good news. And we have to really dig deep into those things, but that can be the place where we gain strength and confidence and God can work through us. And it's actually the calling on our lives to be those kinds of people, to be representatives of Christ's kingdom in the world. And right at chapter 2, verse 11 and 12, there is this transition from understanding who we are and what we've become into how we must live before the world. Last week we looked at what is probably so amazing in 1 Peter, and that is that Peter, an apostle to the Gentiles, who was uh, an apostle to the Jews, excuse me, who was a Jew himself, who was part of the whole culture of growing up in the Jewish community and understanding the wealth of God's promises and destiny and call on the Jewish people, he takes some of those key ideas, those wonderful promises that the Jewish people had, and places it on us as Gentile believers. Says that the power of the gospel reaches to all people. And so as we look at verse 11 and 12, I think we have to be reminded of verse 10 and probably that whole section, verse 4 through 10. But I'd like to camp just a little bit on verse 10. Because when I think about the times in my life when I've struggled with my faith and wondered if it is true, is do I really believe, can I put my full confidence in the gospel... One of the most precious passages of scripture that brings hope and life and joy to me. And that's what Peter's trying to do is build joy around the great truths of the gospel. It really comes from 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 10. And, and just think again with me about even verse 10. Once you were not a people... But now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a quote from Hosea. Hosea, the Old Testament prophet, you might remember Hosea was a prophet that God called to go and get for himself an unfaithful wife. Now we're not sure if she was unfaithful before they got married or after they got married, but he, he chose Gomer who was an unfaithful wife. And the whole book of Hosea is built around the idea that God has been faithful to the people of Israel. 
God has reached out over and over with love and grace and invitation to life for the people of Israel. And they have continued to reject him and to, and, and to refuse to acknowledge him in their life. And therefore, God was divorcing them. And so in Hosea, Gomer and Hosea, they have kids. And it, and it goes around with these Names that communicate these two ideas that we see in verse 10. One was named, you are not my people. And one was named, you will not receive mercy. And so God was communicating to the Israelites that he was cutting them off because of their disobedience, because of their rejection of his covenant love. But as we see in the Old Testament, and we see this in Isaiah as well, when God struggles with cutting off his people in judgment because of their unbelief, he oftentimes is still stirred up with compassion towards his people. So in Hosea, he says, you are not my people and you do not receive mercy. But then in, in chapter 2, it flips and he says there will be a day when you will be my people and you will receive mercy. So there's this promise that God will not let his people go. He, they, he, they will not be lost in their relationship with God. But what is significant here is that Peter picks up this passage and quotes it for us who are Gentile believers. Because what Peter sees is in the work of Jesus Christ, in the gift of Jesus Christ, and the sacrifice of Christ, and the resurrection of Christ, when we come to trust in him, the floodgates of God's grace and covenant invitation into the life of relationship with God is open to all people. And therefore... Not only do we relate to the Israelites because God in judgment said you're not my people and you will not receive mercy. For us as Gentiles, we were not God's people and we were not receiving mercy. But in Christ, in this new glorious work, we can stand in the place of God's people. We can be declared the people of God. We can be now receiving the mercy of God and the richness of all of the promises of God to Israel throughout the whole Old Testament now are come to rest on the people who are in the church of Jesus Christ. And that is you and me. This profound flood of God's grace and mercy to a lost people has now swept up us because of Jesus into God's purpose and plan for all eternity for his people. And it was as the people were sitting with this wonderful recognition, this recognition of a privileged position, that Peter transitions into verse 11 and 12. I think when they were thinking about verse 10... Not being a people and now being the people of God. Not receiving mercy, but now receiving the mercy of God. They recognized that they were breathing in 
a place of position and, and rare air, rare fresh air of life and transformation and joy and promise. Because God has now changed our constitution and made us his own. And so Peter then, after developing this, goes on to explain to us how we are to live and what we're to do about it. I think, in essence, you could say that Peter was communicating, essentially, that we as people who have become God's people, we as people who have now entered into a place of receiving God's mercy, we must now live in a way that reflects the truth of God in the midst of a chaotic culture. And that we must be focused on the riches of salvation, not focused on the results of the chaos. Focused on the promises of God, not focused on the circumstance we find ourselves. This is always the case. The call for living as God's people is no different back then as it is today. Whatever the various trials and difficulties and challenges we face, Peter says the, the bulwark, the, the strong tower in our lives comes from knowing the truth of the gospel. Knowing that it is absolutely true. Knowing that we can trust in it and therefore live in accordance with it regardless of the circumstances. As David Wells, a famous theologian, has said, the choice for God now has to become one in which the church begins to form itself by grace and truth into an outpost of countercultural spirituality. This division, this picture of God's grace must and should be continuing to shine forth in our culture as we live for Christ, as we are transformed by Christ, as we recognize the riches of Christ in our lives. We must recover a sense of difference between following Christ and the culture around us. Too many times we've been shaped by the culture around us. And we must give up Self-cultivation for self-surrender. We must give up entertainment for real worship. We must give up intuition and happy thoughts for the truth of the gospel. And we must give up slick marketing for authentic witness. And finally, we must give up thoughts about God in cheap terms... And think about God as costly obedience. We must do God's will in God's way. So where does this take us? This takes us to the transition that is happening in this book in verse 11 and 12. Verse 11 and 12 sets out a clear exhortation to us who understand who we have become and what God has called us to. And as we study verse 11 and 12 and then through the rest of the book, Peter will hit situation upon situation, social context upon social context, 
where we are called to be different, to be the light of Christ's kingdom in the world around us. We're going to run into such topics as society and government, employment, marriages. But in these two verses, 11 and 12, we learn of the principles that must guide us as we seek to navigate our lives in front of the culture around us who doesn't care about God. So we hear Peter giving us two simple answers to start with in verse 11 and 12. First, verse 11, abstain. Verse 12 is keep or do or conduct yourselves. So let's Read verse 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you for the power of your word and as we hear these this call to abstaining from sinful fleshly desires and living honorable lives in front of the world Lord give us a heart to obey you and to follow you in these ways open our eyes to your grand truth of life for us in Jesus name Amen So first we see a conflict of the inner life. We must abstain from fleshly, fulfilling fleshly desires. Peter's first admonition comes from this first word, which is easy to miss. So if you're reading NIV, it says, dear friends. But this word is actually the word agape, which is a word that we're somewhat familiar with. It's a, a, a theological word. It's a, it's a word that communicates love. Love in a covenant kind of love. It is translated in most Bibles, beloved. And so Peter is saying, making a transition here and saying, dear friends or beloved, realize who you are. Beloved, you are all that we have seen in these previous verses. You are the called of God. You are the the people of God. You're the royal priesthood. You're the holy nation. You are the ones who are the people of God and received mercy. Therefore, I urge you, he says, As foreigners in Exodus, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. One of the first things we have to recognize is that as believers, we are called into a lifestyle that is to honor Christ and that this can be and is described oftentimes in the scriptures as a battle to be waged. Here, these fleshly desires... Sinful desires, as the NIV translates it, is a good translation. It means that we have desires that arise from within us that work against the life of our soul. The very words battle, that these desires, these fleshly things, battle against our soul, means that we can suffer damage in the midst of this life. 
We are in a war against the desires of our flesh. And I think that many times we don't recognize that. And so Peter is calling us as people living in this world to recognize that there is a battle raging and that the flesh, which really is sometimes hard to define, uh, the flesh is not the soul. The flesh is the evil, wicked, sinful attitudes that do arise out of our bodies. But our bodies are not evil. But it's those wicked tendencies within us that are natural responses that we're called to as believers to fight against, to abstain from falling into and from doing. And I think that We have to be careful. We have to realize that we're called to be obedient and that there is a battle going on. And in every moment of every day, we have to be aware of the positive and negative things that are happening in our responses, in our attitudes, in our actions. Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 14, when he says, As obedient children, do not conform to your evil desires that you had when you lived in ignorance. So ignorance refers back to this evil desire, these fleshly responses, because in our ignorance we oftentimes don't recognize sin, we don't recognize rebellion, we don't recognize the selfishness that actually arises from our experience as humans. And that since we are changed and made new, We have to take seriously this idea of abstaining from not falling into, fighting against those behaviors that war against our soul. That will bring damage to our walk and our life with Christ. And so, Peter sounds the note of warning later in this book, in chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, when he says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery and lust and drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. The truth is is that sadly, the world around us spends no time and no interest in focusing on God's will and the behaviors that he has ordained or condemned. There is no recommendations from their newspaper uh, publications or public service announcements or TV shows telling us about how we should follow God's will. We only get that as we come together and worship together, as we're in community together, as we devour God's word and let his word work into our lives. And oftentimes we forget that we're in a war, we're in a battle. And so Peter is saying that we must realize what is true in life. What is true in life is that God has called us to be a light a beacon, an example of his kingdom in the world and that we need to live upholding that truth. We need to be focused on that truth. 
We must, be, we must not be governed by our fleshly behaviors. And this really takes us down into every area of our life. I think that we are tempted to uh, be governed by our fleshly behaviors in our sensuality, in our sexual practices. When it comes to the words we use with one another, and even with people that we meet outside the church, when it comes to the decisions we make with our money, when it's our recreational pursuits, each and every one of these places in our lives can be a place where our fleshly desires take over and guide us more than the will of God, more than what is true and right and what is good and what God would be calling us to. And therefore, these desires of the flesh begin to shape us more than the things of God's will. That's why I call this the inner battle. And we must, as God's people, abstain from the motivations of the flesh. We must see that everything we do must be yielded up to God and His purposes and His will. And not to take any of this as for granted or just easy because God has called us to be transformed because of who we are, because of what he has accomplished in our hearts and life. Therefore, we must take seriously our lives. Now, I'm not saying that we are just sticking the muds and we don't enjoy anything we don't just have fun I mean all of these things are important God gives us these gifts but I think sometimes we live with the gifts he's given and don't think about the spiritual ramifications of those things and the way we use the gifts he gives us we seem to feel like we have a right to ownership of them when in actuality we don't own anything in actuality, we are called to surrender everything in our lives to God. And therefore, that is how we should be absorbed with the glory of God and the purpose of God in everything in our lives. And the danger for us as believers is to think that there's these sections or areas of our lives that we do as we please. And we don't surrender and we don't ask God to show us how we are to see all the things he's given us. And this leads to us being indistinguishable from the world around us. And so what we need is a heart to know God. A heart to be shaped by his truth. A heart to be willing to follow whatever his call is on our life. That's what Peter is advocating. Abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Second, we see in verse 12 the conflict of the outer life. Here, keep your conduct honorable. This exhortation is the complement to the first exhortation, the abstain exhortation. By calling things uh, telling us about things we, sh we must not do. It's the Christianity and religion oftentimes is characterized as just a list of do's and don'ts, things you shouldn't do, things you've got to stay away from. But here, Peter is saying it's not just about what you must not do. 
It is about what we must do as well. And we notice here that we are to live lives among the pagans, among people who don't trust and don't believe and don't know that God has showed up in Jesus and Jesus is the way of salvation. That we must live good lives so that we point to the reality and the truth of that gospel. In other words, we're called to live with a conduct which is nothing less than doing good deeds so that the truth of Christianity is seen and felt and experienced by the people of God. That's the kind of lives we should be living in the community and in the relationships we live with. Sadly, it is a reality that we as Protestants have held to certain truths that are precious, that are important, such as justification by faith, where we believe and say that there's nothing good that I can do to earn salvation, and therefore, if I just trust in Jesus, then I am forgiven, and I'm free, and I'm waiting for heaven. But, the gospel was never intended to be like that. The gospel is that we are justified. We are changed. We are made new when we trust in Jesus. Because Jesus came to bring God's salvation to us. But it's not just that we get saved and wait to go to heaven. We then have to live a life of surrender and trust and obedience throughout our lives. Therefore, I always say that salvation is not just a point in time. It is a point in time and a life of obedience. A light, a life of good works, a life of service. And I know that some of us and some in our uh, Reformed traditions have difficulty with emphasizing good works too much. But it is part of the gospel. It is what salvation should be bringing forth from us in our lives. Think of several passages in the New Testament such as Ephesians 2 Verse 10, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Or Titus 2.7, in everything set them an example by doing what is good. Our conflict as believers is the temptation not to connect our necessary good behavior with our gospel life as Christians. And Peter is charging us to make that connection. We might wonder how this works. How does excellent behavior point anyone to Jesus? Think about 1 Peter 3.15. Always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who ask you for the reason of the hope that you have within you. What Peter says here is that when people look to you and how you express your faith in the gospel, how your actions point to your trust in the gospel, they will wonder what drives you, what shapes you when they see acts of humility in you, when they see when they see that you have done, uh, showed righteous courage, 
when they see you being self-denying of your own benefit and acting generously, when they see you express forgiveness for an obvious wrong or violation that you have received, when they see these things in your life, in the world, as you interact, as you live your life, keeping the good values and hopes of the gospel and demonstrating them by your life, people will notice that something is different about you. They will notice that you don't have hope in self-exaltation or self-protection, safety and money and power. But they will see that your confidence, your peace, your contentment and your love come from someplace else. That's what Peter is advocating. Live such good lives that reflect who Jesus is, that reflect the gospel so that people around you will know the hope of the gospel, the truth of the gospel. So we're called to abstain from fleshly desires and we're called to enter into holy conduct. Conduct to keep the truths of the gospel ever being demonstrated in our lives and in our relationships. This is part and parcel of what it means. And when we began to lose hope and when we began to falter in these battles, to abstain from fleshly temptations, but in reality, they attack us every day. This is an ongoing battle every day. In reality, keeping good conduct is an ongoing reality every day. When we are confronted with these temptations, not, to, not to, to give in to those fleshly desires or not to behave in a way that is Christ-like, we need to return to what Peter says are the foundations, the building blocks of confidence for us. That God has chosen you. He has made you His people. He has given you an inheritance and a rock of salvation that is sure. He has brought you into his unfolding plan of salvation and deliverance for his people down through the history. You are his chosen people, his special people. And when we realize that, we must live in light of that, in response to that. The hope of glorifying God in these two realms of inner conflict and outer conflict is built on our knowing Christ. That's what Peter is driving at. Reminds me of an old story that I've heard um, many years ago. It's about Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great is not the, uh, the example of Christian behavior or anything. And I remember reading in college about how he swept through the Middle East and conquered such large swaths of land, but he, would, he did it in such a devastating way that he just pile up bodies of people that they would kill. But Alexander would go to Babylon and set up court there. And he sat upon a great golden throne and he would pronounce sentences. Sentences against soldiers in his army who committed crimes while they were orchestrating his campaigns. And he would bring in these soldiers and he would pronounce judgment on them. One, uh, one soldier was brought in who was a young Macedonian. He was a soldier and his crime was read aloud before Alexander. 
And Alexander heard the crime, which was fleeing in the face of an enemy. This cowardice, Alexander couldn't stomach. He couldn't tolerate. But as he looked at the young man and he heard the situation and the story of the young man, his countenance became soft and he began to understand a bit of what was going on in the life of the young man. And finally, the king asked him, what's your name? And the man said, Alexander. All of a sudden, the king's face turned crimson and he shouted, what's your name? And all of a sudden, the man stood to attention, and he said, Alexander. And the king got furious, and he jumped down off the throne and went and grabbed the guy and held him up by the lapel and said, what did you say your name was? Uh, Alexander. And he threw him to the ground. And he said, if your name's Alexander, you either need to change your conduct or change your name. And I think in some way, Peter is driving at a similar thing. Not with the threat of judgment, not with a a voice of anger, but a voice of recognition. That if we are Christians, and God has given us great riches in the gospel, and he has reached into our lives and delivered us and made us his own, his special people, it calls for us. And it demands from us a response to that gospel that we would abstain from fleshly desires. That we would keep doing what is good to reflect the truth of God and the wonder of His grace. For that is our call. That is who we are. Because He has made us His own. So, as we hear the rest of Peter... I pray and hope that we will come desiring to change our lives, to submit our wills and our purposes and our longings to the will of God and His desire that He might have final say in everything we do and how we react and how we behave so that the light of the gospel will be seen through God's people. Let's pray together. Lord, you are gracious to us. And Lord, your grace sustains us. Your grace is at work in our hearts and lives, changing us and making us new. And Lord, we thank you that you have called us into a great calling, into a place of life and grace and forgiveness and power and strength because you are at work in us. And Lord, I pray that we would never take for granted the riches of the gospel that we stand in. And I pray, Lord, that our heart's desire would be in everything we do, in every action we take, and every interaction we have with the people around us, that we would see ourselves as representatives of our King, our Lord, and our Savior. Lord, make us a beacon of light, an outpost of spiritual life that can be found in Jesus by who we are and how we honor him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.